I got out of the hospital and I, I, I shit you not, maybe two months later, I was out in the field shooting rocket launchers, throwing hand grenades, shooting machine guns. I, there was, there, there's that there is like a two week period after a hospitalization where you can't touch a gun, but after those two weeks, you're good. So I literally did uh, the way of a local training at that base called mountain peak. And it was, it's super fun. I just, I was, I was shooting, I got shooting rocket launchers, throwing hand grenades. I was shooting rifles and machine guns. I was shooting goddamn grenade launchers, but I guess I'm according to the state or according to the federal government, I'm too crazy to own a gun. You know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry have spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. better at this michael are we i think so <laughs> Te- technically free uh technically screw up free intros we have uh isaac ritchie with us today uh hello isaac hello i'm glad to be on the podcast i am uh well excited i guess is the right word because uh it's a it's a new angle for us um uh, but I'm also disappointed that you're here because of the reasoning. Uh, uh, I, how are you? I say I think uh, I could definitely feel like I feel the same. I'm I'm just glad that somebody was been, is willing to let me talk about my story because it's been very frustrating. Because you know it's it's like one of those classic stories of the little man versus the big man. That's how I feel. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Isaac, you're you're. Uh, I think you're. You're the third person that's contacted us that said, like, I, I want to share my story. I think you're about the sixth or seventh that pointed it, pointed out a similar situation. So this this is a thing. You know, uh, the, the, the New York Safe Act and everything that goes on with New York, and we'll get into that, um, is that it's not so safe. It makes people not want to go get help. And you're a perfect example uh, because of the situation that you were in and what's happened to you of why you wouldn't want to go get help. <laughs> you know so exactly i think um a lot of people have a little bit of a of a fundamental misunderstanding about how these kinds of reporting laws and how they can how they can be flawed you you know what i mean there's there's it's not as it's not as easy as people like to think it is in their minds yeah let's let's rewind a little bit and get an introduction from you tell tell everybody who you are uh you know where where you're from what you do for a living, what you want to be when you grow up, uh, hopes, dreams, fantasies. So uh, my name is Isaac Ritchie, and uh, I was born and raised in the state of Oregon. Uh, growing up, I, you know, Oregon is a very wilderness, woody state. So at least in my part of Oregon, outside of Portland, we we, we do outdoorsy things. We hunt, we fish, we hike. You know, it, it was a it was a fundamental part of my childhood. 
I grew up um, hiking with my, my grandparents were the people that raised me. So I grew up hiking with them and my grandfather was in the military. So he had a little bit of an interest in firearms and we would go shooting on a regular basis and uh, just, just, just kind of the, the general outdoorsy things. Um, right about my high school years was probably when I, uh, that's when I decided to join the military. Uh, I had a little bit of a, how do I say, I, I told myself that I had two options after I graduated. I said, one, I either figure everything out or B, if by the end of my high school career, I have zero idea what I'm going to do. I'm just going to join the military and figure it out while I was in there. And uh, obviously the, the choice was pretty obvious after I graduated and I decided to, uh, to join the military. Uh, so that's a little bit of a background on myself. Like I said, I, I grew up, I grew up shooting guns. I grew up with firearms and I, and I had a very, from, from a very young age, I was kind of introduced to these, to these kinds of things. And I had a, an amazing interest in them. I always saw them as a, as a, you know, a, a tool there, there. And I understood the safety and, and all those things. Let me jump in and ask, um, cause you, you described the outdoorsy hunting type stuff. Did you view firearms as a defensive tool at all as well or not? So when I was from the very beginning, I saw them as um, a more of a hunting tool at first. And as I got older and I was able to kind of have a better understanding of firearms, I, I transferred more into the idea of them using using them as a defensive mechanism to be able to protect my home, to be able to protect the people that I love and uh, things like that. But mostly growing up, I would say as I got older, it was a 50-50 shot between seeing them as a defensive tool and then seeing them as a sport. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. I, I always like to ask these days because um, the, the emerging trend is that people buy guns for defense. And so when you hear not to disqualify your experience or your enthusiasm at all, but when you hear, yeah, I grew up hunting, I'm a gun owner, there's almost always a comma but <laughs> that comes after that. It's like, and then that's where we get the the whole FUD thing. It's like, well, mm -hmm. you're not a real gun advocate, but that's not your case. Um, and that, mm -hmm. that was not some sort of litmus test at all. Oh, I was like, no. I'm just more curious than anything. Yeah, I, um, like I said, I, I, I really enjoyed I guess I was weird when I say this as a teenager because I didn't, you know, I mean, I liked going out and shooting cans and, 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 and shooting things out in the woods like that. You know, it was fun, but I was really interested in the training aspect of it. I had a really big interest in learning how to shoot accurate and learning how to shoot from different angles and, and being able to actually train to use the firearm. That was what I was really interested in. We didn't have a lot of that in Oregon, like the ranges that you could kind of do tac tactical stuff. But I did what I could to try to actually train and actually use them as, like I said, that kind of that kind of sport. Yeah, that's cool. And and we know from uh, from our buddy Derek, who's up there, um, that it is hard to get to a range in Oregon. They make it pretty pretty challenging, I guess, to to install ranges and get them, you know, uh, licensed and so forth. So, uh, and honestly, like what you just described, I mean, that's what people were doing for hundreds of years they <laughs> put stuff up in their backyards to to practice so uh good on you but anyway um thanks for satisfying my personal curiosity there uh where are you now and what are you what are you doing uh so right now i reside in texas um and i don't do anything right now i'm going to college the va is paying for my college i'm getting a, a cybersecurity degree and my uh, one of my long-term goals is to get into federal cybersecurity i would um, say that is doing something by the way 
Yeah, I guess. Not doing I anything. I'm just going to college for cybersecurity, but really it's nothing. <laughs> I guess I don't work. Yeah. That's fine. So you reached out to us uh, and we kind of teased this at the beginning and certainly people are going to see it on the, on the bio intro. Uh, but you, you reached out to us because it was kind of like a, a thank goodness somebody's doing something in this space to reconcile my own uh, frustration. I, I think this is a good time to help introduce that story. So, you know, start wherever you want and we'll sprinkle in questions. We sort of know it because we were chatting before and we saw your email, but um, start wherever you want and explain what it is you're doing on this podcast. So I guess before I get into it, the biggest thing that I like to say, and the thing that I thought about the most when I was thinking about what I was going to say on this podcast was I don't, my, when it comes to my opinions on firearms and second amendment rights, I try to throw those away when it comes to this. I, I don't want to use my story as a way to advocate as to whether or not somebody is pro-gun control or not pro-gun control. I prefer to use I prefer to use my story as a way for people to understand that the system that's in place in states like New York are just fundamentally flawed. I love it. Now, as for whether or not I agree with the system, whether or not I think that these these laws should exist, completely irrelevant. My opinion on this is that the system is flawed and it prevents people from seeking help. And it prevents people. I mean, there's there's veterans, you know, out on the street right now that suffer from severe PTSD and all sorts of mental Lost mental conditions that are oh. 300 times worse than mine. And I guarantee you that these people, Oh, sorry. No, you're, um, you're back. I just can guarantee you that these, the veterans that are on the streets right now, I bet you a good chunk of them. They don't want to seek help in States like New York because they're afraid of what's going to happen for, to, because of what happened to me. Yeah. I, I appreciate you saying that because although we at walk the talk are, you know, obviously two a supporters, we're, we're, the, I wonder somehow sometimes if that message gets, lost the message you just shared gets lost because of the the 2a support and we try to be policy agnostic we're not advocating for or against legislation typically but there's there's this overwhelming increasing need to speak out when we see the policies interfering with healthcare access and obviously we center on mental healthcare access but these barriers to care as created by policies have, like you said, very little to do with the Second Amendment right. That stands separate and apart from getting people the help that they need so they can heal. Real or perceived threats to freedom are, they need to be taken into consideration when these policies are, or regulations or laws are considered, and they're simply not. And we have these unintended consequences now that the policymakers apparently don't care about or are willfully ignorant, or they don't have the right people in their ears. But something is amiss because the conversations I keep having with colleagues in this in the same space, psychiatrists, mental health researchers, gun violence researchers, is they it's like it's like they they glaze over or like the messaging doesn't compute when I say you're creating barriers to care with these policies. And they're like, they don't get it. It's like they just simply don't get it. And they're like, well, but we're saving lives. I'm like, well, but you're actually not. And 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 then it's like the whole discussion breaks down. So I appreciate you saying that. I don't want people to hear rah, rah, my rights 2A and have that be an obstacle to the conversation about what you're about to describe, right? Um, because 
there's a whole ripple effect that can happen that has nothing to do with Second Amendment rights, but has to do with lots of other rights and privileges, I might say, um, where people go seek help and then they get something interfered in their life. Uh, court steps in, uh, they get on an involuntary cycle, something like that, where there, some other freedom or restriction, you know, occur, freedom restriction occurs. And that's a different issue. So it's, it's separate and apart from second amendment. So I appreciate you saying that. And I'm glad we took time to, to highlight that a little bit and parse this out. This is why, why it's good to have podcasts because you can kind of speak freely and create context and nuance that doesn't occur in 280 characters at a time on Twitter, or sometimes even an 1800 word op-ed. I'll shut up. Yeah, I, I, I like, I want, I want to say, and I want to think that we've come a long way in this country when it comes to mental health. And I'm not going to disparage the fact that there are parts of this country and there's that has, we have seen a massive improvement when it comes to mental health care. I mean, it's pretty clear. I mean, back in the nineties, we've still lobotomized people. Mm -hmm. We've definitely come better (laughs) to a better spot, but at the same time, I do feel that especially a little bit of the older generation and a little bit of the, at least politicians is I think that they, they see, they see anybody that has any mental, mental health issues, any mental health, you know, be it depression or anxiety. And they think you're crazy. And I think that we have come a long way as to how we're going to, how this, those kinds of people are going to receive care. But I still think that that preconceived notion of, oh, well, you have depression. Oh, well, that means you're going to go shoot up a school is still there. Yeah. I made a point on another uh, show recently about how we don't, we don't take physiological ailments into consideration when restricting access to things. Um, People can slip into psychosis if they're not on their insulin, for example. Um, And you're not going to, you're not going to hear anybody suggest that diabetics should not have access to firearms or that they should have their keys taken away. And yet the same fallout can occur. So what is it about this this mental health world that still has people on their heels? Um, and, and then, you know, to your point about how we're starting to we're starting to become more ac- acquiesced to the idea that mental illness is overcomable and treatable and all this stuff. I think too, there's certain parts of the the society where the pendulum has swung way too far to the other side. Where it's all I know I see this in in schools in the youth. It's cool to have diagnoses. People, kids are trying to out-diagnose one another, and they're competing for this weird hierarchy of like who's sicker. There's that, but then there's also the mega therapy companies like Talkspace and BetterHelp and Good Therapy, and they, well, all they want to do is grift off of the presentation of everybody has mental illness, everybody needs therapy. Uh, so come to us, pay your subscription fee per month, and have access to a clinician thirty minutes a week and through text or whatever. And that's also equally nefarious, not just because it's done for money purposes, but the messaging is very, very poor that quote unquote, everybody has mental illness because what you're inherently saying is that people don't have the ability to push through life on their own without professional assistance. And that's a very awful message to send, not just because it incapacitates people and removes their ability to self heal, but it also says that you need to spend precious resources on this thing that we're providing and come to us so that we can generate capital off of you. It's very, very unethical on, on many levels. And that's a topic for a different show. But to your point, 
there's still people who stuff it down, avoid it, ignore it. Um, churches still do this by and large. I think um, affluent society probably uh, falls into that category where the, you know if you if you have a ton of privilege and you just kind of don't want to look at the down and outs, you can label them very easily and say those people over there aren't fit. Right. And then uh, hide behind mental illness diagnosis as to, to categorize them as icky or undesirable. And so we've got this weird amalgamation of different presentations. and They're all sort of competing in the same space. And what we need is a voice of reason to say um, some of these things can be true. Some of these are patently absurd. Uh, let's let's find out how to communicate this appropriately, get people the help they need while also removing stigma taking away their fears, whether rational or irrational, and explain the process transparently. What does professional psychotherapy look like? What does it look like when we have to involuntarily commit you because you're just too unstable? And then, sort of like the prison system, how do we restore all your rights and privileges after you're healed? Because if we we operate under the pretense that once sick, always sick, nobody's going to come into care. And it and it makes my profession irrelevant. I would I would just cease to exist as a as a profession as a professional because then nobody could recover. No, there is no rehabilitation, which is also patently absurd. So we got to we got to figure this out. Like we have to have more conversations. Um, thanks for the commercial. I'm fired up this morning. It's only nine twenty four, and I'm already on one. <laughs> Usually, this happens in the afternoon when I'm all pissy. <laughs> I, I I get a little fired up as well when I start to when I start to think about my situation. So I know exactly how you feel. Thank you. I appreciate that. I don't I don't come off as like cantankerous old man shouting at clouds. <laughs> and maybe I am still, but that's <laughs> that's a different topic. Eat your Snickers, man. Come on. Eat my Snickers. <laughs> I'm not me when I'm hungry. <laughs> All right. So tell tell us what happened here. So to kind of branch off as to what I said after, after I got out of high school, I went ahead and I joined the military and I mistakenly to an extent joined the infantry. Uh, I had a, I had a okay time during the military. I, I, I guess when I think back and I think about some of the stuff that I did, I like to say, I try not to be a, a negative Nancy. I can say I had some good time, but uh, my unit in the area that I was in at least localized was very, very known for its um, hazing. So the unit that I was in, I was hazed severely for my very first year in the service. What does that look um, like? Well, the hazing today is a lot different than the hazing that you would see in, I don't know, Full Metal Jacket. The yeah. hazing to the, the military, at least the Army, I can't speak for other branches. The Army definitely has a has rules and laws when it comes to traditional hazing of, I'm going to come up and I'm going to punch you in the head or that I'm going to physically assault you. How it how it looks like in today's society and today's military is a lot different. So just to give you a little bit of an example, we call it getting smoked in the military. I'm sure anyone, anybody who's watching or anyone who's been in the military is going to completely understand what that means. And how I see it is there's definitely a way or there's a, there's a, there's time and place for it. And being smoked basically just means doing really, really crazy physical exercises. So if let's say I, was going out to the range and I forgot my nods, which is my night vision goggles. I could get smoked where they NCO staff sergeant, whoever it is, your squad leader, your team leader would, but you know, just give you an example, make you grab, get, go, go get in full kit, which is 60 pounds or so and go do half a mile sprints for three hours or two hours or whatever it is. 
you know, that's a little bit of an extreme example, but that is kind of a little bit of what it's like. So for me and everyone who came in, I, you know, we kind of, the new guys came in a little bit of like a wave. So we all kind of banded together for the most part. We all experienced this together and, and the infantry still kind of has the, the old style way of thinking when it comes to hazing. So the hazing that we, that I experienced was, was like this, a brand new to the unit and let's say some staff sergeant that I have from, from a squad that I have no idea who he's from comes up to me and he goes, Hey, I want you to tell me who exactly second platoons, second platoon, first squad's team leader is. I'm brand new to the unit. I'm not going to know the answer to that question. So obviously when I tell him, I don't know the answer to that question. He's going to smoke, smoke. He's, he's going to smoke you. And you know, that would be, that could be as simple as just doing some push-ups, which really isn't that bad. But once you kind of start getting into the, you know, they're showing up to your, to your barracks room, which is supposed to be your home in the middle of the night to do it. Or they're showing up to your, they're showing up to you when you get off of work in the military, you're kind of, that's supposed to be your time to decompress. You're not supposed to be bothered unless something comes up like a detail or something like that. You know, it, it becomes one thing when they, when they show up to your room at the end of the day and they want to ask you some absurd question like that, and then they're going to smoke you for two or three hours. Or you would show up to your, you know, you'd show up to morning formation and they would pull out some of the new guys in front of everybody and ask them something like, who is, you know, who is first squads, first squads or, or, or second platoon, first squads, rifleman, like main best rifleman. He's like, oh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm new. I don't know. And, you know, they would smoke you in front of the entire platoon or the entire company. That sounds like a really uh, anxious way to live, not knowing whether or not you could relax. And I don't know if that's intentional, like, hey, if you ever get deployed, you're not going to relax, right? Um, mm-hmm. Rockets can come at any time. I don't know if there's an intentionality to that and they're trying to replicate it or if it's just done out of pure, you know, fragile ego uh, confrontation. But it, either way, it sounds it sounds unpleasant to me. Yeah, this is uh, – so how I knew I'd never be able to make it in the military, I learned that when I was in college. So I went to Arizona State from uh, 94 to 98 and I remember just uh, the the my roommate he was joining a fraternity and it was very similar to this type of situation and obviously like when they would call at like two in the morning and have him come go pick up a pizza and then do whatever <laughs> um, that affected me because it was not like his it was a cell phone it was like our phone that was in between our beds in our room but I watched what he went through to join this fraternity. And I was like, Oh, guess who's never joining a fraternity. <laughs> I, I actually had that same mentality. I said, I'm never joining a fraternity. And then I got pr- approached by a couple of friends from high school who said, uh, we don't do that in our fraternity. I was like, okay. And I was skeptical going, in. I was like, if you guys do this, if I get one hand laid on me, I'm out. And they never <laughs> did, which was great. Uh, it was cool. But I do, I've heard those exact same stories, Mike. Two in the morning phone call to go to McDonald's to get the thing for the for the older member, yeah. And and you know, and there there were times just so I don't come off as like a wimp because I know there's some people that are going to be like, oh, you know, you're just being a wimp. You know, you should have known the answers. But just to, I understood when there were things that I did where I genuinely messed up and I deserved it. There was one time that I went to a range and I and they wanted us to bring. It was a daytime range. They wanted us to bring nods. I forgot to bring my nods. You know, I deserved that. I totally deserved that. And there were times where there's 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 answer to questions that, that I should have known, but I didn't know. And there were there were times where it was warranted, but ninety nine percent of the time, 
the questions they asked, the the things that they did were on purpose. They were they weren't stupid. They weren't doing it. They weren't doing it in a way to to try to help you. They weren't doing it in a way to try to get you to know things. There's much healthier and better ways to do that, like classes and tra- traditional training. They were doing it because they had power and we were new. And that was what they experienced when they were growing in. So it was, it's, it's one of, it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Shit falls down. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. I I totally understand that. It's just whether or not you have the personality to take that, you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? I just knew like for myself, I couldn't be hazed. Yeah. Just, it wouldn't have worked out. They would have probably jumped me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and, And I'll share that the reason I asked about the hazing is because everybody's got a different definition of it. There's, there's legal definitions in like state law, for example, that prohibited in certain practices. And I wondered what your experience was. And it sounds like the commonality here is, you know, the, the targeted, uh, abuse or, you know, um, psychological leveraging against a, a person solely for the purpose of putting them through pain, not for education or experience, you know, or yeah. camaraderie, right? It's like, it's done be- out of meanness, not mm-hmm. because you're being penalized for failing to do something. And, and there's the insinuation that they're setting you up for failure, knowing that you're not going to know the answer, knowing that you're going to fail just so they can, you know, show you who's boss. And I, and I do think that's, that's not something I would ever advise. I mean, you know, marriage and family therapist here, I wouldn't tell parents how to how to raise their kids by using that technique. Uh, if anything, that creates a lack of uh, credibility. And what you want when you're in leadership is you want credibility. You want to be consistent. Um, usually you want to be compassionate. And that's neither. So um, thanks for the explanation. Yeah. And Isaac, like the interesting thing about this, I mean, I'm going to let him tell the rest of the story, but I just think about all the times that I've allowed myself like playing football, right? Like when I was a freshman, you know, the older, the seniors in varsity, there was always these like rituals you went through and you accepted. Um, But I remember like my senior year, I mean, my coach, my football coach was amazing at figuring out who he could do what to. Right. So like, for me, he knew he could scream at me. I mean, I got a clipboard broken over my helmet in a, a televised game. That explains it, a lot about you. <laughs> now. <laughs> and I remember because it was like my grandfather and everybody was like, what did you do to make him do that to you? It was never like back then. It's funny because if that were to happen now, everybody would be up in arms. But, you know, I could drop a pass and he would just go ballistic. And then our running back would fumble or drop it. He'd be like, You'll get the next one, kid. But, but it was because he knew what he could do to people. I think when you and you give them that same treatment, that's a recipe for disaster, especially for one's mental health. It's like they don't understand. Like some people can be on level red. <laughs> some people are, you know. But anyways, continue. The the hazing itself, you know, it, it kind of transitioned from that kind of just asking questions and smoking you to am I allowed to curse on this podcast? Absolutely. I'm going to, I'm going to be careful, but I'll try to watch my language, but sometimes I feel like I, I'm, I'm, I was in the infantry. It's hard to break. As long sometimes. as it's not gratuitous. <laughs> okay. I, okay. So it, it, it kind of went from that, the, the smoking aspect to, you know, kind of like, you don't know the answer to this. So you're stupid. You're a piece of shit. You should know the answer to this. You're holding everybody back because you don't know the answer to this. And, you know, you would be getting smoked while they were telling you things like that. And normally that doesn't affect me. I don't really care what other people think about me. But when you go an entire year of people telling you the same things, 
it starts to chip away at that, that, that wall that you've created to be able to kind of go, I don't care what people think about me. It starts to chip it, a- after a while. It does start to get to you. No matter who you are, in my opinion, I think no matter how strong you are, when you, get, when you start to get told the same thing, that you're a piece of shit, that you're going to get people killed, that you shouldn't be here, yada, yada, yada. Well, that gets repeated every day for an entire year. It really is going to start kind of wearing down on you. That's that's very cluster B, by the way. Uh, the, the gaslighting, the condescension, the contemptuousness. And it's what we see surface in domestic violence relationships and also uh, parental abuse. So this, you know, I'll ask a kid, you know, how was it growing up or how's it, how's it in your home? And they'll say, oh, it's okay. You know, any violence? No, they, they never hit me. Some, they, you know, sometimes dad gets really mad. Well, what does it look like when dad gets mad? Well, he curses and calls me names. It's like, well, okay, now we're, now we're talking about psychological abuse uh, where the, the marks are not physically representative. They can't be quantified or pointed. There's no bruises. There's no bleeding. Um, but internal, internally you're, you're, you're demoralized right now. Imagine if a, a, a an agency is doing that or, or your government, uh, it, it can be really corrosive and wear down a person. All right, let's take a moment and pause right now and thank our sponsors, Ruger and arms Corps. They are our two platinum sponsors. We would love to have more platinum sponsors, and you can get a shout-out on this podcast as well. We really appreciate their support because they are some uh, pretty big heavy hitters in the industry, and when we have the backing of companies with such great reputations and uh, long-standing presence in the industry, we know that it will echo through to other people and give legitimacy to this guns and mental health thing that we're doing. So if you're, uh, if you're fans of Ruger and Rock Island Armor, uh, Armory and Ro- Arms Corps, please reach out to them and give them thanks. Let them know that you heard their uh, support on here and give them your support by purchasing their products. And if you've never heard of them, check them out. You go to Ruger.com and ArmsCorps.com and find out what they have to offer and what they sell. We'll say that uh, I've shot some Arms Corps ammo. We recently had John McLean on, and uh, their ammo is fantastic. And Mike Sedini attests to them making some of the best 1911s on the planet. Personally, I can say for Ruger, I have owned a few Ruger firearms, including my uh, hand-me-down Mark I that I got from my dad, who got from his brother. Uh, and I also own a 1022 takedown model that I bought specifically for my children to learn how to shoot. And uh, it's been great. So thank you to those two companies. I really appreciate your support. And we here uh, continue to promote you the best that we can. If you'd like to sponsor the show, reach out to us, admin at wtta.org. And we will be happy to take your support in whatever form in which it may come. Now back to the show. It, and you know, to, to add some further context, there is a point. I do believe that there is a point that there is a certain extent of the way that you're treated, especially in the infantry where it, it should be used to harden you up. There is an extent. Yeah. There is a, there is a limit to where it is acceptable and then it's not. And we're prepared but, for war. I mean, you, yeah. you can't be, you can't go in soft. Yeah. I, I get yeah. that. And there, there is an, there's an extent to it. And I, you know, but, but there's also an extent to training somebody to get into that kind of mentality and then just berating somebody and doing it because yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so that is my, that is the kind of hazing that I experienced. 
and um, it started to kind of wear down on my on my mental health. And at the time, I wasn't seeing a therapist or a psychiatrist because the especially in the infantry, they have that kind of mentality of you don't need to see that. You know, we don't we know we're, we're men. You know, we kill people. This is what we do. You don't need to see a therapist. And that was the mentality. I saw one in high school, not necessarily because I believed that I had some sort of mental health issues. I just saw a therapist in high school because it was really nice to be able to go to somebody at the, I I didn't, I didn't grow up in a household where I could go to my family and I could vent to them. That's not how I was raised. So, because I mean, I was raised by boomers and that's, that was how they were raised. Mm -hmm. So I was raised in that, in that kind of like, I don't, I didn't go to my grandpa and tell him about, you know, the girl that I liked. I didn't go to my grandpa and tell him about how I'm feeling depressed because I don't have any friends. That's not what I did. That was not how I was raised. And so kind of being able to go to a therapist in high school and have that, I don't know, vulnerability in somebody that I know I could trust and legally couldn't say anything to anybody unless I was a danger. It was very helpful. Which, and then, which, by the way, I have to do another commercial here. This is why we need mental health preventative care paid for by insurance. Right now, we don't. We don't have that. Um, you get it in primary care. You get it in pediatrics. You get it in optometry, dentistry, where you get you know, two, three, four times a year, pop the hood, check the belts and hoses, make sure everything's running okay. We don't get that in our arena. And the reason that's a problem is, as you just pointed out, somebody may not fit diagnostic criteria. And the reason that's important is because in order to get reimbursed by insurance, I have to diagnose you with something and submit that claim to insurance and justify that what I'm doing to quote unquote treat you because we still operate under the medical model is substantiated by your presentation. If you don't meet criteria, you don't have a diagnosis. Therefore, no treatment is necessary. They'll deny the claim. And that's mm-hmm. preposterous. We have to be able to do well person checks in mental health. And you just illuminated it perfectly there. So thank you. I actually did not know that about insurance. I had no idea that that's how that was how it. it, it that, even it, that, Medicaid, even Medicaid, does not provide for, for for preventative care in mental health. That answers a that answers a lot of questions that I had when I was in high school about the therapist I was seeing. <laughs> yeah. So anyway. Oh, you muted yourself, Isaac. Oh, sorry about that. Sorry, we'll so, cut that out. As far as you know. So. Where was I? So I talked about a little bit, went, went back in time a little bit there. So in the military and the infantry, especially, again, I can't speak for other MOSs and I'm not even going to try to pretend like I do because the the, the different MOSs, it, it really does matter. The guy who's in the infantry is not going to be treated the same as the guy who was, a I don't know, in supply or the the a good example is like, you know, special forces. Those guys get treated significantly differently than the guys in the infantry. Are we fundamentally the same? Yeah, we're trained to kick in doors and shoot people. But obviously, they're at a way higher level, so they get treated differently. So your MOS and the way that you are in the, in the, in the, in the job that you're in is going to vary significantly, and your experience is going to vary. So I'm not even going to also – I'm also not going to try to pretend that this is normal because the military is very much a um, experience may vary kind of thing because there was people that I knew who – that nothing was experienced like this. It wasn't like that. So either way, you know, the hazing started to chip away from me. And the thing that also really started to get to me too, was I had a lot of goals when I was joining, there were lots of schools that I wanted to go to. Not necessarily. I didn't have the traditional idea of wanting to go to ranger school or wanting to go to airborne school. I wanted to do things like machine gun leaders course. 
I wanted to go to the courses that learned how to take apart and like advanced firearm repair, being an armorer. Those were the kinds of schools that I wanted to go to. But because I was new and because I was very quickly a target for this harassment, I was never given the opportunity. I would ask, you know, man, I really want to go to this. I want to develop. I want to learn this. No, you're, you're not meant for that. Well, I wanted to, I want to go here. No, we're, uh, we, we don't, we don't care. You know, that, 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 that was another thing that really sucked because I, I joined the military with the idea of wanting to go to all of these schools, learn how to do all of this stuff. And I was never granted that opportunity. And I, and I don't really know a hundred percent why, but I suspect it was because I was just, I was, I was a target. Hmm. I, quick question. Do you, when you do these things, cause I don't know how it works. Like, mm-hmm. do you, can you potentially pigeonhole yourself with the path that you take? Mm, no so the problem is is that your so how it would work is let's say i wanted to go to let's say i wanted to transition and go to machine gun leaders course or you know better yet let's say i want to go to um uh, repelling school what has to happen is i have to go to my team leader who will go to my squad leader and i have to submit something called a packet and that packet is basically just a bunch of information about me and who i am and how i how i perform at my unit and that is submitted all the way up to your commander your commander and your first sergeant have to basically look at it and go, okay, we like this dude. We think he's going to be cool. They sign off on it and then you go. So, I mean, I mean, you could, you know, buddy up with your, if you, you could, you could buddy up with your squad leaders and your team leaders and, and, and try to kind of, kind of get your way in like that. But if, but really, if your team leader doesn't like you for whatever reason, you're not going to that school. At least again, that was how my experience was. There were guys that I knew who were in completely different bases than me, who all they had to do was go over to the team leader and go, I want to go to this school. And they'd be like, okay. And then they were, they were, they really wanted their, their junior enlisted to do that kind of stuff. But my unit, they cared more about numbers. So what looks good for a unit? What looks good for a company? Your NCOs go to those schools. That's what they care about. So your junior enlisted, they don't care about what they don't care about what you want. They don't. At least my unit. I have heard that type of inconsistency across uh, military. It sounds like you you drew a bad you drew the short straw. Um, yeah. There, it, which you know that happens. I mean, not all not all companies are made the same. Not mm-hmm. all bosses are made the same. So you know that makes sense. And this is, but I mean, back to your point though. You you, you went through this experience. Uh, it was not enjoyable for the most part. And then that led to some other things like you being on the mm. podcast. <laughs> but so I guess to keep going here, what ended up happening was um, again, my mental health was already at a little bit of a low point because of the hazing and, and, and things of that nature. And my grandmother, who was my mom growing up, she, oh, she, she died. She, um, she was born in Indonesia. So she had a very, a very interesting way of thinking about like Western medicine and she had a diabetes and she was very stubborn about taking her medication. So that ended up, uh, ended up kind of just wearing away at her body and she passed away. I saw it coming. We all, the whole family saw it coming, but you know, that was still like my mother growing up. So, um, I went, I, I went on a, basically an emergency leave to go home and to go see her before she died. And, uh, this was, this was definitely, this kind of particular situation was definitely a, um, this was a little bit of a camel, a straw that broke the camel's back kind of situation. 
um, I went home on leave and I wanted to extend my, my leave so I could see my mother's funeral and my commander uh, denied it. They, um, they, at, at first they denied it. And uh, it, it, it took a good group of my, of my close friends going to the commander's office and going like, this is his mother to kind of break or to get him to kind of be a human being. So it was extended, but that was one of those things that really was like, I have to go back to this, you know, like when I was, when I was, when my leave was ending and I started to think about it, I was like, I have to go back to this. I have to go back to the hazing. I have to go back to this. Mm-hmm. And that was probably when my mental health kind of took another big slope was my mother dying. And and then the, the denial. And uh, after that, uh, a girl that I was seeing uh, broke up with me because I was in the military and I was in a different state than her. So all these three things happened and it was, it was the perfect storm, I guess. And it, um, I ended up getting very, very, I had getting suicidal. Um, I don't like to say suicidal, but more so it's just, I had extreme suicidal ideations, which I guess can be considered suicidal. And, um, I did have some friends that I could speak to in the military, but I didn't really have anybody. I was new to the unit. I didn't have a lot of friends. I had no family in the state. I was in a new city. I didn't know, you know, there, I had, I had nothing. So I had nobody to fall back on. And there's only so much of texting somebody back home that, that, that can kind of help when you're in a little bit of a crisis. So I went to my team leader and I, I told him, I just spilled the beans. This was a guy that I actually trusted. And I just spilled the beans on him and told him like, this is what's going on with me. I need help. And he, he was great. I mean, he sat down, he talked with me and he, he kind of, I was at, I was at a hundred and then talking to him kind of brought me down to a little bit of like an 80 or a 70. And, um, my a, a really really good friend of mine who lives in Iowa called the local military police because they just he wanted he couldn't physically do anything so he wanted somebody to come check on me and at the time I was speaking to my team leader about what was going on and um the military police showed up and they were just like hey we got a phone call you know we wanted to come check on you and I told them what was going on I just I just vented and you know, I just got it all out and they basically said well hey we think that you would benefit by going to a local hospital to, to get some help. And at the time I had, I had a very, when I pictured mental health hospital or our mental health wing of a hospital, I pictured like one flew over the, uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. You know, I pictured that. So I, I was like, no, I don't want to do this. But the, the, the staff sergeant that was there sat me down and talked to me and he was like, look, like, I know what you're thinking. I know what's going through your head. It's not, how you think it is. And he, and he said, I, I think that you would really benefit by going here. I don't like, there is no stigma about this. You're in a crisis and you need help. And so I it was like, okay. And I agreed. So they, you know, they told me just, they told me very particularly, you're not under arrest. You're not being detained. This is on your own volition. And so I went with them. They took me to the hospital and I spent five days in uh, the hospital and it was great. I learned a lot. I mean, it, it was, it was, it was, it was a good way to be able to kind of like disconnect from what was going on. And it was, it was great. It was not anything like the movies, you know, it was, it was very supportive. There were people in there that were in very similar, similar situations as me that were just very depressed. 
And um, was it a you know, military hospital or a community hospital? It was a it was a civilian hospital. Okay. And it was um, it like I said, it, it was great. I mean, I had individual psychotherapy with different psychiatrists, and psychologists, and I had we did group therapy where we all talked about what was going on. And, you know, there were, there were like games that we could play together. And it was very much, it was very much encouraged for the people inside of that hospital to kind of like, don't just sit in your room and, and, and wallow, get out, talk to people. That was, and, and, and that was what I needed. You know, I'm a very social person and being able to just go and just talk to people was, was, it was, it was amazing. Um, so I got out of the hospital. It was probably, I was only there for maybe five days. And, um, the hazing stopped immediately. The, 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 I actually had, I still remember his name was Sergeant Aguirre. He was Sergeant Aguirre was my, it was really weird. We had two squad leaders or platoon sergeants. Excuse me. We had two platoon sergeants because one was in the process of getting out and the other one was a little underranked. So the, 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 the superior was kind of teaching the other one how to be a platoon sergeant. So we kind of had two. And uh, they were they were they were amazing. They once they once they kind of found out what happened and that I was in the hospital. Sergeant Nagiri actually came to the hospital. We were in the middle of going through a, a mass. I, I was it was in upstate New York, so I had a. We were going through a a, 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 a what do you call it a blizzard at the time because upstate New York it's like negative thirty degrees, six six feet of snow, stuff like that. And we were going through a blizzard, and that man drove from about 30 or 45 minutes from his house to come check on me in the hospital. And we just talked. So after that, the hazing basically stopped completely. Was he one of the ones who was directing the hazing? No, he wasn't. No, I think I would, at least in my case, it wasn't necessarily a directing. It was more so, just the way that it was, if that makes sense. It was, it was like I, it was like they they all kind of went, "Ooh, maybe we took this too far." Yeah. Okay. And the the people there there were there now when I got out of the hospital, there were some people that were like, you know, this guy's a pussy. He went to the hospital. Are you serious? This this guy really had to go here. He sure. really had to seek that. You know, I had a little bit of that, but my but Sergeant Aguirre, he he nipped that in the bud very quickly, and. You know, after that, I was treated significantly better, and my and my and my mental psych got better. It started to get better. I started seeing a therapist on a regular basis every week, like I used to in high school. And um, you know, I it, it took a little bit of it took a little bit of time, but I healed. I real quick was that was that therapist your uh, base therapist or was it a yes uh, community? okay yeah. He he he's a civilian, but he works on the hospital. Right, right, yeah. Or not the hospital, health. the 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 the, the base. Yeah, yeah, your mental health person on on site. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, they and he was great. He was one of the best therapists I've ever had in my life. I mean, he was great. And you know, like I said, it took some time to heal. It obviously wasn't instant. I didn't get out of the hospital and suddenly I was free of suicidal ideations and everything was great. I still had some healing, but eventually I learned, you know, from some of the stuff that I had in the hospital from the current. Uh, therapy and the, and the psychotherapy that I was, that I was going through, I learned how to cope. I learned how to deal with depression. And, you know, I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder. I, I learned the coping mechanisms. I learned how, what to do when I start feeling depressed. I learned, you know, for me, it's the gym. 
you know, like when I, when I, when I get really, really depressed and I get really down, I don't take meds. I don't take any of that. I go to the gym. I do it every day. And that is, that is my out. Nice. And for everybody, it's completely different. Some people like to go driving. Some people like to, you know, but me, it's the gym. Um, it's, it's a healthy, it's, it, it's a healthy coping mechanism that I learned from the military, honestly. And as much as I, I talk about the military as being this awful experience, there were parts of it that were, that were great. You know, it, it forged me to who I am, who I am as a person today, that hazing was awful. It was, it was, it was the worst thing I've ever experienced in my life, but I mean, it did, it did change me. I do feel stronger. I feel better. And if it wasn't for that, you know, I, I'm one of those people that don't, I don't like to look back at the negative experiences in my life and try to just go it and pity it. I try to look back at it and learn how I learned from that situation. What did I do to, to get better from there? And I, I, I like to think that everything happens for a reason. And uh, anyways, I went off on a little bit of a tangent there. Sorry. No, it's good. I, I'm probably <laughs> actually going to snip that for the, uh, for the intro. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> I, um, anyways, I get out of the army and again, that, that I get out of the army like a, it was probably like a year later, totally unrelated, not, nothing to do with that honorably discharged. And I went back to my home state of Oregon. Now to give you a little bit of a background on guns in the military, like personally on firearms, it's really difficult to keep them unless you live in a house and in the military junior enlisted. So this is like E1 through E4. So like your privates to specialists. And even, I think even your basic Sergeant, your E5, they live in the barracks. Barracks is awful. It's garbage. I hate it. That was another probably another good chunk of of, of why I was so depressed. But um, you know, everybody lives in the barracks. And then once you get to E6 and above, or if you're an officer, you immediately go into a house. So when you have a house, you don't have to live on base. You can live off base. And obviously they can't just come check your house and raid your place whenever they want. Like they can in the barracks, they can come in and check whenever they want. But for houses, they can't. So if you want to own a gun, you can. Now, if you live in the barracks and you want to own a firearm, there's nothing against it, but you can't own it. You can't have it in your barracks room. It has to go into the company armory. And that's where it is. It, there's like a whole section in the armory dedicated for personally owned firearms. And you have to go find the company armorer whenever you want to pull it out. And the company armorer is just a dude. It's one dude. So at least at my unit, it was one guy. So it's not, I think it was two. So it's not like, this was some special dude who you could just call up on the phone and be like, Hey man, I want to go shooting today. You know, this was some guy who had a life who had his own wife and kids or whatever it was that, you know, had to take time out of his own day to come into the barracks, to go open up the armory, to let you get your own firearm. So that's why I didn't own any when I was in. So anyways, I get out of the military. I go back home to Oregon and I'm like, okay, I'm out. Got to figure my stuff together. But I haven't been able to own my own firearms in like two, three years. So um, I want to go buy my own guns. I want to go buy a shotgun for home defense. That was my mindset at the time is, you know, at the time I met my lovely girlfriend um, while I was on leave and um, she, you know, I was very big on protecting the home, especially because where I'm from the town and the city that I'm from, there's a really big homeless issue with mental health issue. So they would, there's a lot of break-ins and a lot, it's just a lot of crime. So I was, I wanted a shotgun for home defense. And then I was, I was going to also go out and buy AR and go do training to help continue my, you know, like what I learned from the military and go training and keep up with it, yada, yada. 
So I go to a local gun store and I go to buy a gun and the next background check is immediately denied. So at the time I was, I was, you know, I was like, what? I didn't understand. I, I, I was like, why was, why was it denied? I thought, you know, well, maybe it's a case of mistaken identity. So I went in and normally on the, on the, the ATF form, I don't put my social security number, but this time I did. So I was like, okay, you know, I'm going to put my social security number and I'm going to also tell the, I thought maybe it could have been because I just got out of the military. So I had an address in New York and now I'm in Oregon and Oregon has kind of these weird, it has its own background check. Like it, it has NICS, but Oregon also has its own separate entity that does background checks directly to the sheriff's office. So I figured like, oh, maybe they thought it was suspicious. So I, I did my due diligence for that and it was still denied immediately. And so I was at a complete standstill. I was like, I don't, I don't know why it's being denied. And the gun, the gun shop gave me a number to call and it was through the FBI. So I called the number and I go to voicemail and you have to just basically tell your information on the phone about who you are, the, the Nick's transaction number and all this stuff. And it took like two or three months for them to get back to me. And I've, of course, the FBI used COVID as an excuse to say, oh, well, you know, we're overstaffed, we're understaffed, yada, yada, yada. And it's like, yeah, okay. Um, so I, it took like two or three months. And eventually they came back to me and the FBI was like, we have no idea. We don't know why you were, you, we don't know why you were denied, but it says in our system that there's, there's like a code or something that says that the code originated in New York. But somehow the goddamn FBI doesn't know what that code means. So I was like, okay. And they gave me a number to call for like the New York Sheriff's Office or something like that. So then I called the New York Sheriff's Office and they were like, they were like, well, we don't really know. So go call the hospital. Okay. okay you know, whatever. So I called the hospital. They forwarded me to like the, the top hospital person where whatever the hell they're called. And she was the one who said, yes. So in the state of New York, when you come to a hospital, voluntary or involuntary, we're required to, or excuse me, not, not voluntarily, involuntarily, you have, we have to report to the federal government. And then you become a federally prohibited person because under the federal law, people who have been committed to a mental institute cannot own a firearm. Now, of course, I was pissed. Because for one, I wasn't involved. It wasn't involuntary. The police brought me to that hospital. They opened up the door and they said, good luck. And then left. And I walked into those doors myself. So I, 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 just, I didn't understand. I didn't, I was, I didn't understand what was going on. It didn't make sense to me. And I went through, they, that's all the information they had for me. So I went through months of trying to figure out how do I appeal this? Who do I got to talk to? And that's what led me to uh, probably like maybe two or three months later. So this, at this point, it's like six months. I figured out that uh, I had to go through the, an office in New York called the um, Nick's Appeal and Safe Act. And that was where I started to really get into the nitty gritty of the laws behind how this works. So me, I, I, I'm one of those people where like when I, when I get mad and I get frustrated about something, I, I dig into it to figure out what, 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 what like I, I start digging into it. So that's what I started to do. You know, I started looking into the laws and I started looking into what was going on. And what I learned was that while I did walk into that hospital completely by myself, 
New York has a thing called a 939 hold. And that hold does not require a court order. It is not an involuntary commitment. But the hospital can report it as an involuntary commitment. And that, and if they do so, the federal government doesn't have like a check and balance for that. They just go, oh, you were, you were involuntarily committed? Okay, you can't own a gun. So they don't try to talk to you. They don't try to, they don't try to do anything. They just, they just, they just take, they take it at face value. And um, obviously from there, I was even more pissed because I was, I was like, this doesn't make any sense. This is not involuntary. And by the federal definition, and I went through the, by the federal definition, I'm not, I'm not a prohibited person. Because it even says inside the exemptions on the ATF form that you have to fill out when you're um, trying to purchase a gun. It says in the exemptions, if you were committed for observation only, you do not have to check this box. The box being, have you been involuntarily committed to a mental institution? So a 939 hold is literally called a 939 medical hold or uh, observation hold. But because the hospital and the people in that hospital have the power to report it as an involuntary commitment, you're barred. Yeah, I'm frustrated because I appreciate your your due diligence, right? That you found out the why, which is great. You found out why all this happened and the, the, the frustrations with it. But we're talking about the wrong thing. As I said earlier, if, if we take a mindset that if somebody gets sick, they can't be healed, then my profession ceases to exist and people just fumble forward, apparently, you know, permanently ill. The very idea of an involuntary commitment on its face suggests in this context that you cannot be healed. So the fact that that is even on the 4473 at all flies in the face of rehabilitative care. And again, we don't ask this for any other malady or ailment. It's mental illness only. But let's say you were involuntarily committed and you healed. Now what? You're just permanently stripped of your rights? That makes no sense. Exactly. I the the issue I I, I agree with what you said. The 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 issue is not necessarily there's obviously an underlying issue with the law itself, but the other issue is how it it stops people from seeking help. Right, right. I if I would have known if I if if I would have known that going to that hospital would have resulted in this, I wouldn't have gone. I would have said, "Screw that! I don't want to have to go. I don't want to have to sue the state of New York to get my gun rights back. I don't want to have to go to a court proceeding. I don't want to do any of that. I'm a I am, I'm not crazy. I am a, a law-abiding, God-fearing man. And I, I just have depression. I am not crazy. I'm not going to kill anybody. I'm not going to kill myself. I've healed. I am a better person. And like you said, all this does is stop people like me from seeking help. We have thousands, hundreds of thousands of veterans on the streets. Or, you know, not even on the streets. We don't have to talk about homeless veterans. We have all, all kinds of veterans that suffer silently from mental health issues. And they, they don't seek help because they know that this is going to happen. 
or they're they're scared to. Well, it is. It, I was just going to say real quick, Mike. This is also explains why certain people get in fights with cops. They don't want to go to jail or prison because, for a completely different reason, it could impact their ability to be employed later. You know, the the whole ban the box movement on check check the box if you've ever been commi- you know convicted of a felony, or anything for that matter. It's like, well, well, yeah, but that was then and this is now. I still have to do it. I have a misdemeanor on my record from 2002. It's 20 years later. I'm still checking the box. The records have even been purged from Reno Muni Court or Reno Justice Court, wherever it was. It's like, how long do I have to keep paying this penance? Anyway. Yeah, well, one of the things I find interesting is you get released from the hospital and you go right back into the military, right? I'm sure. Yeah, that that <laughs> that is something I was going to mention is that I got out of the hospital and I, I, I shit you not, maybe two months later, I was out in the field shooting rocket launchers, throwing hand grenades, shooting machine guns. I, there was, there, there's that there is like a two week period after a hospitalization where you can't touch a gun, but after those two weeks, you're good. So I literally did uh, the, we have a local training at that base called mountain peak and it was, it's super fun. I just, I was, I was shooting, I got shooting rocket launchers, throwing hand grenades, I was shooting rifles and machine guns. I was shooting goddamn grenade launchers. But I guess I'm, according to the state or according to the federal government, I'm too crazy to own a gun. This is the same federal government that operates the very military in which you were serving, correct? Yeah, exactly. Okay, okay, okay. Just, just to make sure we were clear. <laughs> and it's it's actually, it's so the appeal process, the appeal process, it, it, it's through the New York Safe Act. And the craziest thing about this is they don't tell you, they don't, they don't, what's supposed to happen. And from what I understand, what is supposed to happen is they're supposed to communicate with you and tell you like, Hey, like you can't own a gun. Now, how they get away with not doing it is in the state of New York, if you're hospitalized and you have a, uh, uh, because they have crazy restrictions on guns. So you have to, like, they, they're a shall issue state, you know, like you can't just go and they, you have to have a good reason to want to own a handgun, for example. And once you get that license, which is extremely hard, if you're hospitalized, at that point, they're required to tell you, hey, you can't own a gun. We're coming to take them from you. But if you were if, if you were like me, I was a resident of Oregon at the time still, so I was never informed. As a matter of fact, I, you know, back home, I had rifles. I, 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 I didn't just sell all of my guns. I had rifles and I was around them. And then when I got out, but once I found out that I couldn't own one, I got rid of it because I didn't even want to risk the chance of something happening where somebody comes into my house or maybe I have to call 911 and then they do a background. I was paranoid that, you know, I could be put into federal prison for being a federally prohibited person or for being a federally prohibited person and go to jail for a felony for possessing a firearm. And how I see it too is I have, I, this is going to sound, this is going to be a little controversial, but I like to say that I have less rights right now than a felon does. And the reason I say that is because at least a felon has due process. Hmm. I didn't. Mm -hmm. I had no due process. There was no court proceeding that took away my, my fundamental rights in this country. There was no court. There was no judge. There was no commission. Nothing. It was you went to a hospital, so now we assume you're a danger to the public, and we're going to ban you from owning guns. Yeah. And uh, 
I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because, as I said earlier, we try we try not to wander into policy, you know, advocacy one way or another. We try to stay agnostic about that, so it keeps our mission true. But then we have stories like this, and we're like, well, what is this saying? Are, are we are we throwing the dice on? potentially obstructing more care by having Isaac Ritchie on the podcast and telling a story or Sandra Richardson on the podcast and telling her story or Kim Petters on the podcast and telling her story. You know, it's like, are we, are we running the risk of disinviting more people into care? And then I think, well, no, we have to, we have to be transparent. We have to let the chips fall where they fall. And I think it, it is, it makes it even more imperative that we create a directory of gun-friendly healthcare practitioners. We have to. Uh, that's that's the way the market has to respond to this. If we're not going to stop the policies, we we're outsized in our uh, you know our efforts to impact change. If willful people don't want to listen to stories like yours and Sandy's, then we just have to create our our secondary marketplace. Uh, mm-hmm. That that's how that's how we fight it because we can't we can't keep people from care because it exacerbates their conditions. We can't do that. That's that's morally repugnant to me to just go, ah, we're bellyaching about it. Ah, somebody must do something. And we wave our fists in the air and we froth at the mouth. But we have to do something. And, and maybe the something is we just create an alternative uh, marketplace. I keep going back mm-hmm. to that. Is that that's, that's what it has to be. We have to, we have to be able to assure people with a reasonable degree of certainty that they're going to be received well and not judged uh, when they come in and that we're not going to put their name into a database somewhere for mm-hmm. future you know, negative outcomes. It's, it's crazy. Isaac, do you think anybody in your squad, did, did, did anybody know, do you think anybody had a clue that that could happen to you? Like, no. I don't think I don't think anybody knew. I don't even think the military police officer who told me to go knew because this is I mean, if we get into the politics of things, I think I personally think that that is intentional. I think that uh, this process is done is done, on, at least for the state of New York. I mean, I, I think it's done on purpose because it it they they're they're using mental health as a guise to push their political agenda and how i see it is is that's what they want they don't want people to know that they don't want people to hear my story they the the states and the governments and the people responsible for this this is their fear they don't want people to know that well they make it so byzantine to go back right i i can buy in to somebody who says oh man i had no idea that red flag laws were unintentionally creating uh, barriers to care access. What we really thought we were doing was keeping people safe in a time of crisis by removing the most dangerous things from their homes against their will. All right, you know we can we can have a hair splitting debate about whether or not that's useful or beneficial. But I I believe in the good heartedness of that presentation. But when you create a very specific, very pre- precise, and yet totally unassailable law that affords the opportunity for activist clinicians, for example, or hospital administrators to drop somebody's, some, uh, some marker in somebody's file very surreptitiously and without transparency, without consent. And that's what really what we're talking about here is you never, you never mm-hmm. consented to this. Uh, I, th- I think it has to be considered intentional. It is very pernicious. Someone somewhere knew that. And now how far down the chain did the, 
purpose person who is putting that into your record know what the the future ramifications were? I don't know. You know, maybe maybe the hospital people didn't know. Maybe they just thought they were doing the right thing. Maybe they just maybe they were just commanded and they didn't bother to ask. Because I I work with a lot of people in my own profession who don't know our own laws. I'm like, mm-hmm. well, I was just doing what I was told in college. It's like, well, you need to be a little more critically thinking thinking than that. But I can at the top levels, the person who authors that law has to know. Has to know. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you can not know. How do you not if if you're if you're that blind, you shouldn't be in office. Um if you're that uncritical in your thinking, you should you should not be making policy that binds across millions of people, like in the state of New York. Where things where where the line for me started to get blurry between intentional and unintentional was the appeal process. Right, right. That's what I mean. Yep. It's it's purposely obstructive. So the appeal process for my case is I have to fill out the same exact form that a felon has to fill out when he is trying to get his gun rights back. It is something called a certificate of relief of disabilities. And how this form works is you have to submit to, you have to submit fingerprints, criminal background history. You have to submit every single psychiatric record from the day that you started seeing therapy. So for me, it was when I was 15. I had to submit every single psychiatric history to this state entity. If you can obtain them, by the way. If, yeah, exactly. And that was not an easy feat. Um, and then I had to submit all of that, including the criminal background history, to the NICS Appeal and Safe Act office. Now, the uh, on the paperwork, it says that it's supposed to take 6 to 18 weeks to be completed. Which Was, was there a fee, by the way? No, no fee. Okay. Well, there's a there it. Not directly. You ha- there's a fee you have to pay in order for you to get your background, your FBI criminal history. Mm-hmm. So there's a indirect fee. We you, you have to get to the FBI, and um, it gets it's a little pricey because you have to you have to pay for the fingerprints, which you know it's like twenty I mean, bucks. It, yeah, pricey depending on who you are. Me, I'm I'm very stingy with my money, so it's pricey to me. So you have to pay 20 bucks for the fingerprinting and then the personal history summary, I think itself, the processing fee is like five or 10 bucks. So you're spending like 30 or 40 bucks essentially to kind of get this process completed, which, you know, may not be a lot of money to somebody, but you know, to me, I mean, 30 bucks is 30 bucks. There's a lot I could be doing with that money besides giving it to the federal government. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, now on the paperwork, it says it's supposed to take six to 18 weeks to complete. So when I set my packet in and I emailed and I found the email for this particular office, I asked them, I called them and I said, hey, you know, this is my situation. I've submitted all of the paperwork. Did you guys receive it? Yes, we did. Okay, great. How long is this going to take? Upwards to a year. Not six to 18 weeks. Yeah. So I said, you know, I, I was I was like at the time and this that was a big blow to me because at the time I wasn't even going to go to college. I want to be a police officer. That that is that is that was my that is still one of my goals is I want to be a police officer. I want to help people. That that is what I have always wanted. That's why I joined the military. Let me pause real quick. You would end up being a police officer who couldn't own a firearm. Okay, go on. Yeah, so the goal was to be a police officer and that was taken away from me because I can't own a gun. So 6 6 to 18 weeks at the time was was like okay whatever you know at the time i was doing hvac so i was like this isn't what i really want to be doing right now but 6 to 18 weeks that's not that bad and then once they said upwards to a year that was a big blow to me because i already had plans i was preparing for the academy i was getting in good physical shape i quit smoking like i i was planning to go to the academy 
And then when they said it's going to take upwards to a year, it threw a massive pen in my, in my, in my life goals. This, by the way, is a prime example of why people end up taking their lives because they get into a desperate situation where despair takes over. They don't believe they have a career. They have their career ostensibly taken away from them and they don't see a way out. You happen to be resilient. You've taught yourself resilience and it didn't affect you that way. But I do know people who have had these wrenches thrown in their life and they end up suicidal and it's not necessarily gun rights. It's a series of other things where they just, you know, one turn after another, they become frustrated. They don't get the job they want. They end up in an alternative career that they didn't really desire. And they're like, is life even worth living? And that's a reasonable conclusion to draw for lots of people. This is what these policies do. They make people more desperate and it's infuriating. I, I got into a, I never got suicidal, but I did get pretty depressed for, uh, for like a month or two because it felt, it felt it, it it felt uh, I it, it was it was it was one of those feelings where it's like I just spent the last year of my life preparing for the academy studying for all the stuff and now it's been taken away from me because of something that I did like two or two years ago you know so like I said I, I practiced resiliency I saw a therapist and I and I, and I kind of got out of that slump I never got too deep into it but um so I just was like okay well I've, I've got a year what the hell am I going to do? And that was when I decided to go to college. That was when I kind of shifted my career ideas and decided I wanted to go federal cybersecurity because I love computers. And um, that was kind of, it, it, it helped me kind of shift to figure out where I was wanting to go, but where the issue, where, where the things get even more scary or, or just depressing is I asked the this off the, the communication with this office was awful. It um you know they were very condescending every time I would at email them. You know me, I was checking every couple of months to see what the process was because I was hearing nothing from them. So I was emailing them every couple of months, like, hey, is there an update? You know what like what's going on? And they would just send you a, like a one sentence thing. I have no info for you. You know stuff like that. And they were and then. They, I could tell they were getting annoyed by how often I was checking. And how embarrassing and humiliating is it to to be in that position too, where you're basically treated as a second class citizen for something mm-hmm. that wasn't wasn't your fault and was done to you, and to have to acknowledge you're like you know some guys want to go out shooting or you know like hey you want to you want to go do this thing you're like oh sorry I'm not I'm a I'm a I'm a prohibited person <laughs> like yeah that what the hell. That is something that 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 sucked felt like it sucked the life out of me was again, all of my friends shot guns. So hey, I want to go shooting. Hey, and we're gonna go and up. you can't borrow them in Oregon because they have a transfer mm-hmm. law. Yeah. It's like, hey, you wanna go, hey, you wanna go shooting? I can't. Now there were times where I still went shooting because I would be out in the woods and you know, there's no range or anything like that. But you know, like here in the state of Texas, there's no private land. So that's not a thing. I can't just kick off into the woods with a couple of buddies and go shoot some targets. I have to go to a range, but the majority of ranges require you to acknowledge that you're not a federally prohibited person. And I don't even want to risk the chance of going into a range. And then, you know, this is kind of paranoia, but I don't want to risk the chance of going into a range. Somehow someone finds out that I'm not supposed to be there. And then I go to federal prison because I am a federally prohibited person. Um, so the communication with this office was very lackluster. 
and it was it was just a couple of weeks ago. So we're we're this about nine or ten, it was about ten months later. I finally heard I got uh, my letter, and it was a denial. To uh, it was a denial Shut on up. my appeal. Mm-hmm. Wow, what's um, the rationale? I can't wait to hear this. So the office used they used quotes from when I was fifteen to try to try to point out the fact that as of now I haven't. Their, their exact the exact quote was that the office does not believe that I have a, that I have appropriately resolved the issues that led to my hospitalization and that it would not be of public safety interest to allow me to own firearms. Now, some of the stuff that they use inside of that outside of that letter was, you know, they, they pointed out things, things that I said to my therapist when I was 16, I watched a lot of the Punisher to give you like, as a, as I was a comic book nerd, I read a lot of the Punisher and at the time I, I would, I would talk to my therapist about like, you know, there are bad people out there that deserve to die. Rapists should be killed. You know, people who rape people should die. Uh, mur- mass murderers, school shooters should should be put to, put to death. Things like that. I used to say things like that to my therapist because I was so frustrated at the world. And they used they, they 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 used that and said that you frequently talked about themes. Or you, you frequently talked about killing for justice as a teenager. And they used things like that as a way to deny my to deny me. And then they used um, the fact that right after my hospitalization, obviously I wasn't 100% healed. They tried to use the fact that I was still feeling a little depressed as ways to point the fact that try to point out that I'm somehow haven't recovered. And then as for my current therapist, they used things in my therapy notes, like, you know, like sometimes I get, sometimes I get irritated with things and that's something I vent. I go to my therapist to vent. And my therapist he writes down exactly what he sees. These notes that therapists use are not supposed to be taken at face value. They're not. They write down exactly what they see. And sometimes, like from what I just learned, sometimes they might stretch the truth so your insurance will keep covering it. Now, me, I'm lucky. I have the VA. I don't have to, I don't have to worry about any of that. The VA pays for my therapy for the rest of my life for free. I'm never going to have to worry about that. But um, they were using things in my in my in my in my psychiatric history from when I was 16 to use it as a basis when that's not what matters. What matters what this should be about is my hospitalization. This has nothing to do with what I said before. This has nothing to do with after. This is this should be about my hospitalization and the reasons that brought me there. And I even pointed out in my appeal during the appeal process that I shot rocket launchers after my hospitalization. Don't you think that if I was crazy and that it would have been not a, 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 a it would I would have been a danger to public safety that I probably would have killed a few people with a rocket launcher? I could do a lot of damage with that thing. Um, they 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 litig- they litigated your past to prosecute your future. Yeah, and it, it's despicable. At the you know the craziest thing to me, the thing that makes me so mad about that denial and the way that they worded that denial is these people don't know me. They didn't call me. They didn't interview me. They didn't call my therapists. All they did was take what my therapist notes were, took it at face value and used that all as a basis to deny it. So they're saying in this paperwork that I haven't fully recovered, but these people don't know me. They don't know how I am today. They don't know my mental psych right now. They don't know anything about me. 
They don't and care. Yeah. They don't. And that that denial was a massive blow to me. Um, you know, I started smoking again after the after the denial because I I I I thought it was going to be a clear and cut just like a clear and cut, you know, this guy was at the infantry. He shot guns afterwards. Of course he's safe. That's what I thought it was going to be. But no, it wasn't. So it 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 was a massive blow. And I mean, even now I'm still angry and upset and and I you know, I like I told you, it's a uh, I feel so small and insignificant because it's 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 what do I do now? You know, I I I have what I'm doing is there's a local politician here in Texas who has reached out to the FBI and is um, going to bat for me. Um, and uh, his actually, I'll, I'll I'll name drop him because he's uh, he's been really helpful. I mean, I don't know how even if even if he can't a hundred percent help, the fact that he's even doing anything is a is is amazing to me because this yeah. is it's 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 congressman van taylor and he's the one that as of right now is acting essentially as a conduit between the fbi and me and i've spoken to a few lawyers and what they're telling me is that by the by the federal definition i'm not a prohibited person and all i need to do is appeal this through the fbi but that's not easy <laughs> they don't make this it is easy. yeah this is <laughs> so once again like we you know not to beat a dead horse, Jake, but we always talk about this is like, how do, do people have the resilience? Do they have the means? Um, do they have like, there's so many people out there probably are just like, I just was told unfairly that I can't own firearms, but I don't have the time or the energy or any, you know, I the can't resources, the access, resources, the access. Right. Um, God, do you think about how many people are on this list that don't even know you know what's, what I mean? what's what's crazy to me was I've spoken to a few New York lawyers who have all said that they're they're not going to do anything. They're not going to help me. There's only been one lawyer that I've spoken to so far, and that's a lawyer in Texas who pointed me in the right direction. And he was the one who pointed out the fact that I'm not a that I should not be a federally prohibited person. But like I said, it's when I spoke to the lawyers in New York, they said that I'm the fourth or fifth person that's called. You know, so this is this is and and from what one of the lawyers told me, the hospital that I was in is very known for this and that there's a lot of hospitals in the state of New York that. Like you said, they're like activists, they they know that this is going to happen and they do it with the intention of, you know, screw this guy, you know, or not maybe not screw this guy, but, you know, like this guy should, you know, I don't believe this guy should own a gun. So, and they're not thinking anybody should own a gun. And this is just their their latest, uh, you know, tally mark in their war against guns or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's, I am, I'm thankful that this, that this politician is helping me. But at the end of the day, if, if he, if, if there's nothing that he can do and my denial gets, gets and I get denied through the FBI, the craziest thing about this was I asked the office how long this thing would last on my background and it's forever. It, it doesn't. It, there's no statue of limitation where 20 years from now it'll just kind of pop away and go away. It is forever. 
Well, so that inherently invalidates their letter back to you that says they, you know, they don't think you've healed because mm-hmm. the letter implies that healing is possible. Mm-hmm. But by their own ag- admission, apparently, forever is not congruent with that statement. Now you can you can appeal it again after another year, but but if they're going to use the same history to yeah, prosecute exactly. the present, you're you're dead in the water. They would have done that the first time if that were truly their goal, and it doesn't sound like they're that's truly their goal. I have right. so if many. They had some kind of criteria for him to hit, like hey, yep. take a you know yoga class, jazz, tap, hip hop, whatever. Exactly. Or you're getting get an evaluation from somebody in present moment to clear you, right? And then it's somebody else's butt that's on the line. You know, go go get Jake to decertify you and sign a letter. But they didn't offer that, which means that there yeah. isn't a path to to restoration. What's what's it's frustrating? What's frustrating? Another thing that's incredibly frustrating is when I've spoken to other attorneys about this is they asked me, why did you not get a lawyer before filing the appeal? I didn't know. Yeah. I, so, so did the these, these office, did, did this office doesn't tell you anything when you're appealing this. They don't tell you, we advise you that you get a lawyer, even if something as simple as that. They don't tell you anything. They just, it's, it's just, just, Hey, fill out, give us all this information. Now the lawyers told me that none of that information was even necessary. I didn't have to provide all these medical records. I didn't have to. No, they they, because, they baited you and, and you took it and they trapped you with your own, with with the bait. Exactly, and that's what's 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 crappy about it is that they and even even after like recently, for example, I reached out to them and they told me that there is some sort of appeal or denial appeal. Like you can deny the appeal. And I asked them, okay, cool. Well, how do I do that? And all they said was, we advise you contact an attorney. So when the attorneys told me, we don't know anything about this, I emailed them again. And I said, look, guys, I've contacted attorneys. They don't even know this appeal process. Can you, I'm not asking for legal advice. I just want you to just point me in the right direction. And what do they say in response? There's an appeal process. We advise you get a lawyer. I wish I could say I'm unfamiliar with this, but when I was working with my, I was chairing my licensing board here, um, the, the governmental entities are, are, even if you want to help somebody, let's say you're, you're a good bureaucrat and you want to help the person, um, all they're allowed to do because they don't want to get sued for .gov giving advice is point you in the direction of the, the code, the statute, the regulatory, uh, description, whatever it is. And then it's up to you to figure it out. But it sounds like they're not even doing that for you. They're not saying, hey, go to CFR or whatever and find it for yourself. Um, they're, they're being purposely obfuscatory, which is despicable. And, and, and you're not getting any help from the attorneys. And, and I, I could see why, because it's a challenging case. Uh, probably won't net them very much money. Uh, their time is better spent elsewhere. You know, it's just it, you have to get somebody who's as zealous about righting the wrong as the people who are interested in continuing the wrong. I get so many thoughts rolling through my head, and we're running up on time here. Um, but but I want to share this. If there's clinicians listening, and you're hearing things like, "What do you mean my records could be used to <laughs> to permanently convict somebody?" Um, that's that's something we wrestle with. 
you know, the notes that we take, they're, they are snapshots in time. Uh, you, you spend 50 to 55 minutes with somebody and you write a paragraph or two. That's not sufficient to capture the nuance of the session. And what we encourage is if you got to go anywhere with anything, uh, ask us for a treatment summary. It provides us a lot more latitude to, to provide context. But it's, it's really despicable when these, you know, we see it in uh, social services, juvenile justice, family court, they'll obtain records and we say, be very, very careful about asking for your records. We'll give them to you because you own them. Te- technically, you own them. I don't own them. You own your records. But be very careful about what you're asking because we might describe some pretty bad stuff in there that you've gone through and maybe you don't want that in the public eyeball for whatever it is that you need. Um, so if there's clinicians listening, uh, I would just reiterate that, you know, watch what you write in your notes. Don't lie. Don't embellish. And, and I, I, I can agree with you that working in a, working at the psych hospital for children and adolescents, when I was working inpatient, that was the insurance was the game. I, I remember being told by, by directors and medical directors and doctors and hospital administration, you know, make it sound worse than it is. We need to keep this kid here because they're going to deny care. And it, it wasn't about money. I mean, sometimes it was about money, keeping the kid in the bed for a little bit longer because they got paid off it. But usually it was because insurance isn't interested in keeping the kid there to heal because they pay money to keep the kid there to get healed. And their fiduciary responsibility is to their shareholders. And they can't <laughs> fatten the shareholders' pockets by spending money on care. So, you know, kid gets in and we need six to ten weeks and they're denying after four days. What am I supposed to do? Say he's still sick? It's like, well, make it sound worse. I'm like, I don't want to do that. That's unethical. It's really hard. It's so bad. Our system is jacked, man. It, it like I said earlier, how I feel now is just defeated. You know, I feel, yeah. I feel, it's like a punch in the face. And the other, the other big issue is, I don't know if, let's say the, let's say my appeal to the FBI goes through. God given, it goes through. And I can own guns again. I don't know if that thing stays on my record permanently. I don't know if it's still there. Yeah, there's no way to confirm it. it. And if it does stay there, there's a chance that my life, my my goal, my current goal of getting into federal cybersecurity is a bust. Because how am I going to be able to get a top secret clearance or even get another secret? I used to have a secret clearance. How am I even going to be able to get these clearances if that thing is a permanent stain on my record. Well, now you've just given him even more paperwork, right? (laughs) Oh, he got denied on his appeal. He's definitely not worthy. It's like, Oh man, what a terrible mess we created. Yeah. Not to, I don't want to, I don't want to be negative, but I I think there is going to be an issue just because I, um, the famous story of Shanine Allen, which I got brought into because she, was carrying a firearm in New Jersey and she lived in Philadelphia and it was one of, one of Eagle imports. It was a Bursa, but um, she had this on her record. And when it got, when, you know, she was vindicated and went through the process and then it took a long time for it to come off, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and she worked, she was a nurse, so she worked in hospitals. So that became really problematic. So it's not like the right hand talks to the left hand and it's like, Oh, he's good. He's good. Or she's good. She's good. You know, like, let's just lift whatever it is. There is there is a, a process, I believe, and it takes a while. Um, and yeah, I, don't even, I, I don't know how it ended for her. You know, I I've basically come to terms. Like I said, my my original life plan was to be a beat cop for a little bit with my cybersecurity degree, 
kind of branch towards detective and then go towards FBI so that I had a solid resume for when I applied. I've essentially just came to terms with the fact that I'm never going to be able to become a cop because of this on my record. And what's wild to me and the thing that frustrates me the most is to think that all it took was the stroke of a pen to, to do all of this damage. And all, all it took was less than an hour, but it takes years to get rid of it. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I, go ahead. I was saying, and, and that's where, again, my line of thinking intentional versus unintentional starts to get blurred. Yeah. I, um, I'll spin it positively. Okay. Yeah. You are defeated. Yeah. You got knocked down. You got punched in the face. We'll, we'll run with that metaphor. You, the fight isn't over and you're only in the middle rounds and lots of people come back in the later rounds to win the fight. So, if we stick with that analogy, I would encourage you to keep fighting because there's there's more at stake than just you, right? If, if your story is successful, then it acts as a beacon and an indicator to other people that they can also be successful. And eventually maybe it gets taken up at a, a state legislative level in New York or a federal level or somebody else files a lawsuit or maybe a bunch of other people hear this podcast because we're super popular. Uh, <laughs> and they go, oh, you know what? Class action suit is where it's at. And then stuff really starts to change. You know, don't don't quit. Uh, that's that's my encouragement to you. And I know that sounds you know possibly empty coming from a guy who isn't doing it, but having fought systems for a while and tried to slay dragons as I have, uh, there there can be victory on the other end, uh, even though it may seem pyrrhic along the way. Uh, when you stand at the end and you have your pride and your dignity intact, and you you see the ripple effect impacting more people, it can be worth the sacrifice. It really can. And I, I would encourage you just, just keep fighting through the later rounds. Uh, no, there's no ref here calling TKO. So, um, you know, stick with it. That's, that is where, how do I, how do I say this? That was part of the reason I was very excited to be allowed onto the podcast was because I, I, what I, what I wish is that I could take this to a federal level because I think that this is affecting hundreds of thousands of innocent people probably and they're and I keep and, and the average the average guy he doesn't know what's he doesn't know this is happening he doesn't he has no idea that this is happening and that is what I wish that that's that 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 is why I want my story to be told because there are people that are suffering in silence. I just happen to be the one person that has enough resilience to try to fight the system. But everybody is not. No, not everybody is that way. And I feel like sometimes that's what somebody needs is to be able to, to look and go, there is somebody else in my situation. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. I just have to keep driving. How, how did you find us? Honestly, I'm trying to... I, no, I not started, honestly. Lie. Oh. Please lie. <laughs> and make a big embellishing whopper. I Is it the billboards? <laughs> <laughs> I I started when I when I decided so to back up just a little bit, my original plan was if this was denied, I was gonna go big. I was gonna try to get this all over the place. That was my goal. If it was accepted and the denial and it was that's all it was, I just had to go through that appeal. I just was gonna just leave it because it wasn't worth it. To me, I was like, well, you know what? No, no, what? There's no worth. There's no point in fighting. I'm just gonna 
I'm just going to lick my wounds and just move on. But since it was denied, I started reaching out to all kinds of different gun advocate groups. I reached out to uh, the NRA who told me to get screwed. I reached out to the gun owners of America who told me to get screwed. I reached out to, you know, Steven Crowder, Kali Anwar. I reached out to fucking Joe Rogan. I just started just emailing people because I figured at some point somebody would read my story and go, I want to listen to this guy. Was it far-fetched to like write to Colleen Noir and Joe Rogan and all these other people? Yeah, they're probably never going to read my story. But so because of that, I started looking into different organizations. And then I found was it Sandra's story on your guys' website. Mm-hmm. And when I went through it and I saw that she found the light at the end of the tunnel, I was like, well, if they had her story on, they'd probably want mine. And that's when I reached out to you guys. Because I heard Sandra's story and I said, there, I am not the only one. Well, and, nobody yeah. in the audio can see this. Um, and we're not doing a YouTube of it because Isaac doesn't have a camera. But he, I'm putting my arms in the air with a little victory um, Rocky pose. <laughs> yeah, that's there. There's there's case in point. Yeah, I was uh, I was, you know, because I never want to press when people there's a lot of people that contact us that actually just want to vent or say this is what happened to me but they don't want they're not comfortable going on a podcast or sharing the story right which is understandable um but when when i saw your message come through and i was like oh man here we are with the new york safe act again and this is a ongoing topic that i have especially when i'm doing speaking events i know jake does it as well it's like we encourage people to go get help and then i'm always doing asterisk time like there are certain states where you have to be careful, right? And I, I bring up New York. And what's what's really interesting is like organizations like Mental Health America, they know the New York Safe Act is horrible. So I just don't understand how we haven't been able to tackle this thing or at least get it reworked. Um, you know, that the the force there is very strong. <laughs> you know, you just keep rolling with the way it is. But yeah, I think about all the people that haven't gotten help because they knew going into this in New York, you know, like you said, Jake, when the stories get out there, it could become a barrier to entry. And then I think about all the people that just never even thought about it or just, they're not into guns, but one day they might want to be. And then they go into the the store and they have that exact same feeling you did. It's almost like when you walk outside and if your car's missing, right, you're like, wait a second, I know I parked here. I don't think anyone goes, my car just got stolen. I think they go through mm-hmm. like a, a, a 10 minute process of, Maybe I parked it somewhere else. Did someone borrow it? Right. But then you have to go through that whole like, oh, my God, did I lose my gun rights for something I did six years ago or something like that? You know, Uh, it's horrible, man. I. I think my theory behind why nothing has been done is I think a lot of people get into my situation and then they think. I'm just one dude. What the hell am I going to do against the federal government? What am I going to do? I think that's what I think. I think that was my mentality at first. You know, that was that was my mentality. Was it was it was it was. It's I'm just a, I'm a single dude, and it's me up against New York. Who's who's going to win? Well, clearly they are. They have the money. They have the resources. They have the tools. And I think that, and then and then you kind of get into that mindset of just I'm the only one. Nobody else is in this situation, even though it's not true. That that that's the mindset you get into. That's what you talk yourself into thinking is that. There's nobody else that's going to be willing to help me. And I think that's the mindset that 
everybody goes through, but thank God my loving girlfriend, she is, you know, she was, she's kind of the, one of the people that are like, you need to keep fighting. And she's the, one of the reasons I haven't just given up because I've thought about it. You know, I've thought about just, 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 you know what, screw it. But, and it's you know, not, it's, it's not just gun rights. If, if people hear this and they're like, I don't care about guns, guns are stupid. Who cares if that guy ever has guns? Set that aside. It's now it's career rights. Mm-hmm. Now it's property rights. It, 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 those are, those are unassailable. Like we can't, we can't just cast that away because some administrator in a hospital checked a box. No one should have that power, by the way. And that's why this needs to keep moving forward because it's it's what's next. They they denied they denied your gun rights. You can't have a career. You can't have the career you're choosing. And so anybody who who hears this and hears me say this goes, well, I don't care or so what he can work another job. Uh, I don't want to talk to you that you're, you're, you're uncompassionate. Uh, that, 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 that doesn't even carry water for me. And I'll, again, I'll pivot to prison. People go to prison, they get convicted, they come out. Are they really fully restored to society? No, no one can make that argument. So this is this is a big, big, big problem. This just happens to be an administrative one as opposed to a criminal one. But both are problematic when people can't live the lives that they choose in the freedom that they wish that's given to us by something other than a fellow man. We need to solve this. We have to solve it. And you, yes, your, your voice does need to keep, keep being louder and louder. And at least you have the year of a sitting congressman, which is great. Um, I would keep feathering that gas pedal, man. I just... I hope somebody, I, I hope people listen to this podcast and share it. And I hope that, I, I hope, I pray that, that, that this gets out. Me because... too, but that's only for my ego. <laughs> I, 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 I just, I want to help people. And I think that this is one way that I can do this because at this point I don't see this as just about me anymore. You know, there's obviously the portion of it. That's like, I want my damn gun rights back, but I see this as a little bit broader now. And like you said to anybody who's thinking, well, the guy can't own guns anymore. Oh, well, there's much, or to anybody who's thinking about red flag loss and they think, Oh, this guy can't own a gun anymore. Oh, whatever. It's not just that there's so much broader, there's there's a much broader distinction than just I can't own guns. Like you said, now I now there's entire sections of jobs I can't do. What I, I was in the infantry. What am I qualified to do? I'm qualified to shoot and blow things up. <laughs> so when I got out into the civilian world and I wanted to go, you know, do security, you know, some of the higher, higher security stuff at like federal buildings or stuff that, you know, is actually pays well. Can't do that anymore. Do I want to? Do I want to build my my resume to make it to make me to be able to work in a security gig here in Texas? Where, um, you know, there's all kinds of armed security gigs here in Texas, but the license that's required, I obviously can't get. So there goes that entire section. Do I want to go? Well, I'm in college right now. I don't want to work a full time job. I love guns. Maybe I want to go down to the store and work at a gun store and just be able to talk guns all day. That sounds awesome. Can't do that. Can't even hunt. Nope, can't hunt. I can crossbow hunt. That's about it. <laughs> it yeah, you can't possibly do any harm with a crossbow. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Not I can to, walk in. 
<laughs> Not to mention your own pers- personal self-efficacy of that whole, like, I'm a prohibited person, hang head in shame. Mm-hmm. You know, it, like, that's not right. That's not right. Yeah. Well, Isaac, we're going to do our best to 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 pump this out. Uh, I can guarantee you we'll get in front of Colleen Noir and a, a few of other people that are attached to WTTA. And uh, we'll see where it goes and in any way we can help you. Um, I'm definitely going to use your story uh, when I speak and then talk to clinicians and gun owners and everything. Um, I have one question before we let you go. It's what we always ask our, our, our guests. How do you tend to your mental health these days? (laughs) (laughs) Well, what I do now is, I see a therapist on a, on a weekly basis. It's very similar to like what I was in high school. I see a therapist, not, not just because, you know, I get depressed every now and again, but just because I like having someone to vent to. And I got my lovely girlfriend, but it's just not the same. And, um, I, now I, I fish, I do a lot of fishing now. Once my, my gun rights were denied, I decided I needed to pick up a new hobby. So I've been fishing a lot and, uh, fishing and going to the gym. So I would say those are the, those are the three things that I do is I, I see a therapist on a weekly basis and I fish and I go to the gym. Do you ever go to the gym with the fish or your therapist? <laughs> well, I eat the fish afterwards for the protein. So there I guess go. you could, you could combine the two. <laughs> Sam, salmon have to train to swim upstream. So that's why I asked that. I, didn't, I don't know how they train. Well, Isaac, we really appreciate your uh, your time and your your dedication and your sacrifice. I mean, like this that's a big big deal. Um, appreciate you being honest and open and vulnerable. That's that's a big deal too. It takes it takes guts. Uh, I know that probably by this point you've rehearsed this a bunch in your own mind at least, if not you know told the story to a bunch of people. But it's still it's it's different every time you you retell the story. And I I appreciate it. I know other people are going to appreciate it. And I second what Mike says. I, I go present in lots of different forums and um, make different appearances and do lots of teaching and training. And I, I'll absolutely reference this story like I referenced Sandy's uh, because it's it's important that people know the potential unintentional side effects or consequences or negative outcomes of their uh, poorly considered policy decisions. Um, New York took a cop off the streets. You know what I mean? Like that's essentially what this amounts to. You're really protecting people? denying people the opportunity to go serve the community like that's that's absurd so thank you uh appreciate it and uh if you haven't uh, yet checked out our new sponsors uh we have two platinum sponsors now uh newest is ruger we really appreciate ruger's support and obviously arms corps rock island armory they are also a platinum sponsor for a long time shout out to my own company zephyr wellness which is trying to lead the way in this whole welcoming of the gun community motif that we've started. Mike's pointing to his shirt, but you can't see that on audio. He's wearing his upper level shirt. Thank you, Michael. And so on behalf of our Walk the Talk family, all the people who support us, all the people who listen, please share this around. Give us a rating and review. Apparently that helps drive traffic or something. And until next time, we wish you all great mental wellness. Bye-bye. New York took a cop off the streets. You know what I mean? Like that's essentially what this amounts to.